Hello and welcome to Rooftop, the UK's only dedicated roofing podcast brought to you by NFRC. I'm Phil Campbell. And I'm Pip Applegate. In this podcast, we interview industry figures, thought leaders and technical experts to make sure you are leading in roofing excellence. We will also bring you regular features which will include things like topical news discussions, technical tips and guidance to help you stay safe on site. And good news, we finally made it back into the office to record this episode. The first time since probably our second episode, I think. So hopefully there's an improved sound quality for you all. So in this episode, we will hear from Gary Walpole, our safety, health and environmental officer, with his technical tip for you all regarding working in these hot conditions that we are experiencing currently. And we're also joined by James Tamman, our CEO, who is about to interview a long-standing friend of NFRC, Dr. William Chan. William, also known as Bill, has a very interesting life story and technical career in the roofing sector, and we're honoured to have him here today. But we don't want to give too much away just yet, so instead we'll hand over to James to take things over from here. Thank you, Pip and Phil, and I'm delighted on this slightly overcast uh, early summer's morning to um, be interviewing today a esteemed and well-respected uh, member of our roofing community. I had the pleasure of meeting this gentleman a few years ago when he facilitated an introduction to the Chinese Waterproofing Association. He has long-standing um, uh, support of the National Federation of Roofing Contractors, and I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Bill Chan. Bill, a very good morning to you. Thank you very much for your welcome. And Bill, may I ask, how have you coped with the uh, pandemic? Quite well, actually. Um, at my age, um, apart from still continuing to work, uh, I don't uh, go out very often. <laughs> because I do recall, we I think we were all looking forward to going to uh, the uh, Young Roofer World Championships in Beijing, weren't we, prior to all this yes, pandemic? Yes. And it's been such a great shame that uh, that event has had to be uh, postponed. Yes, I'm hoping next year I'll be able to go to the postponed event. I know, I think we're all hoping, you know, hopefully with the vaccination programs going around the world, that we're all in a better place and we can all meet again in Beijing. Yes, thank you. Bill, my first question in our interview today uh, concerns your early years. Can yes. you give us um, you know, sort of your background to where you were brought up and, uh, and, what, and how you got into this industry? Yes, thank you. Uh, I was born and brought up in Hong Kong. Uh, I survived the Japanese occupation following Pearl Harbor, 1941 uh, to 45. I graduated in 1950 from Hong Kong University with a degree in civil engineering, then came to London for postgraduate studies. 
And Bill, I know from uh, you know reading your, your 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 background in terms of your your father and uh, and and your you know his reputation in in the uh, Chinese um, government, and it's a fascinating story. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, my father was um, a revolutionary at the end of the 19th century, uh, helping to overthrow the then corrupt Qing dynasty, which exposed China to foreign intervention and exploitation. Um, When the People's Republic was formed in 1947, he was invited as a veteran of the early revolution to become chairman of a uh, political party, not a communist party, uh, that supports the government and looks after overseas Chinese interests. Uh, he held this post until he died in at the height of the Cultural Revolution in 1970, 1970, yes. He is still uh, warmly commemorated in China uh, on his birthday anniversary every year. His party, which is still very active, holds a commemoration service, which I always attend. I'm very glad through my background to establish technically my own connections with China. And I'm very pleased that with the help of the NFRC, I've been able to cement very strong ties with the roofing industry, particularly the China National Waterproof, uh, Building Waterproof Association. And it has been a real privilege for me to have that understanding of your background, and I know how high your reputation is in both our markets. Um, your, your, your entry to the UK, and that is, that's a very interesting story, and how you developed your career in construction in the UK. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, uh, civil engineers, as I am, are not uh, to be found in the roofing industry. And my involvement started in 1972 when the new wind loading code was published, forcing uh, roofing designers to be responsible for wind resistance of roofs up to a certain maximum value specified in the code. The roofing industry had no technical background to deal with this issue, and I was appointed by a major tile manufacturer to address this problem. I was retained as a part-time consultant, and unbelievably, the retainer has survived to this day, over 40 years. Amazing. And, you know, your early years in engineering construction in the UK, you've been involved in many interesting projects. Could you just tell us a bit about some of those? I've I've read those in your biography. 
Yes, in the early days, I concentrated on heavy civil engineering, dock and harbour, uh, long span bridges, nuclear power stations, uh, flood prevention schemes, the early feasibility study of the Thames barrier, which unbelievably only got built 35 years later due to political hesitation. Uh, I then entered the building industry by being the chief structural engineer of Dexian, the well-known slotted angle manufacturer, when they suddenly found that all the whiskey installations in Scotland were collapsing because their non-technical salesmen happily told the, their customers that all the diagonals and the racks could be removed. <laughs> so suddenly, the slotted angle industry felt they needed an engineer. Right. <laughs> Interesting. I, I was fascinated to read about your time as chief executive of the National Building Agency because sort of things come around, don't they? So we've currently got, obviously, the, the government is very much uh, committed towards what they refer to as modern methods of construction, yes. Yes. which is very much focused on off-site. Yes. And obviously, this this was a, a sort of previous initiative. Can, yes. can you tell us about your time there? Yes, I'm amused that I don't recognize the present situation as new. No. <laughs> it's simply history repeating itself. Yes. And there are, there are certain dangers which hasn't been revealed yet. The danger is economic. If there is not a continuous demand, the off-site costs, capital costs, will cripple the the the, uh, the supply of uh, prefabricated units. This was the reason that led to the demise of system building in the 1960s and 70s. I was chief executive uh, responsible at the time for the national certification of system building. Uh, system sponsors who uh, submitted bona fide systems of building which were labor-saving at, were at the time given government priority for local authority grants for public housing. So my job was very high profile at the time. Uh, unfortunately, Ronan Point happened at the time where a 22-story uh, block of flats progressively collapsed. I was the fall guy. I had to live through uh, the painful process of imposing new requirements to prevent progressive collapse. Very unpopular at the time. Uh, so I grew up politically very quickly. I'm so fascinated by this this piece in, in, in your uh, biography. You know, this fixation on off-site production, manufacture, etc. Are there any other lessons we could pick up? Um, the new future in feature in buildings is curves. I'm a bit worried as an engineer that 
well, not only as an engineer, but as a consumer, that everybody wants to build curved buildings. Nobody ever mentions the extra cost involved of making curved profiles. Uh, starting from the shape of carpets uh, to curved pieces of glass, prefabricated cladding, uh, and of course, occasionally, disasters like forming concave mirrors which uh, burn the pedestrians. So, Bill, what's um, attracted you to the roofing industry? You briefly touched on, on that earlier, but what in particular attracted you to, to coming into this sector? Well, I wasn't attracted in the first instance. It happened, as I described earlier, largely by chance. Uh, I got into it and I found it very interesting, particularly as I enjoyed being probably the sole civil engineer in the roofing industry. So it was, a, as it were, a niche market for my services. Mm -hmm. And I found, of course, a small fraternity, very friendly, and I got to know everybody quite quickly. And your reputation, um, you know, related to uh, excellence and standards uh, is a fantastic legacy. So could you just tell us about some of your achievements and some of the standards you've worked on over your career? Yes, I was, uh, I'm very proud of one feature in my work on standards, and that is I've dealt with all three roofing sectors, flat roofs, slating and tiling, and profile sheeting. Those three sectors uh, uh, are very often, and still are today, largely operating separately. Uh, I was able to, because I dealt with the three standards almost at the same time, I was able to cross-fertilize the experience and the principles involved in the three apparently different sectors of roofing. And you've worked across British standards and obviously in, in Europe with SEN. What do you see some of the challenges with us coming out of the European Union with regard to standards? Well, it's still an unsettled uh, situation as of today uh, because um, the UK will still belong to SEN. Uh, when it exports to Europe, it has to comply with European CE marking. Uh, when we uh, supply within the UK, there's of course the equivalent UK mark, and Northern Ireland is yet another uh, can of worms. So there are complications. Um, technically, we have benefited from the combined experience of many countries in Europe in writing uh, product standards, uh, European product standards. Uh, it is almost impossible to write what I call application standards, namely codes of practice, because of the very different climatic conditions and building practices 
across different countries in Europe. Because we have an interesting climate in the UK, don't we, compared to a lot of mainland Europe? Yes, drizzling all the time. <laughs> we, we can have four seasons in one day, yes. can't we? But as far as roofing is concerned, the most uh, critical area is wind. Because we are near the northwest tip of the Atlantic Ocean, the UK experiences the highest wind speeds in Europe. And that is why in the code of practice for slating and tiling, we have extensive rules for uh, providing safe security against wind, but uh, in an economic way. And you know, the, in the industry is in a very interesting time of um, the focus on roofing is perhaps beyond just waterproofing. It's about thermal efficiency. It's about hoping, uh, helping to slow down water running off roofs. It's about creating energy on roofs and often also to, to create in, you know, natural environments through the likes of green roofs. What, so the career opportunities are perhaps broader than they were when certainly when I first came into the, the industry. What, what advice would you give to young people thinking about a career in our industry? Well, because I'm mainly concerned with the technical side of uh, roofing, I can only speak about uh, uh, the satisfaction of working technically in the roofing industry. I think it's an interesting and friendly uh, sector. I don't have much exposure to the business side of uh, roofing, but I think it's a, a, an interesting area for people who are technically minded because uh, roofing will develop further into energy conservation. I must repeat, as I often have, that the roofing industry should become more proactive in pursuing uh, renewable energy uh, devices. Um, my dream is for roofs to be fitted with a combination of wind, heat, and light sources of energy collection as a package. And that extends to cladding because cladding on walls is the best obstructor of wind and therefore is the best wind collector, wind energy collector. Um, so I believe there, there's lots of opportunities for technical people involved. So the, the actual building fa fabric becomes very dynamic in, in, in many sort of different ways. So in terms of, I guess, career and skills opportunities, but technically that's going to open potentially many doors. Yes, indeed, yeah. Now it's quite an, you know, I think we're on the cusp of a very exciting time within, within the industry. Uh, I, I recall your um, speech at Edinburgh Castle on, on that particular subject, uh, and you mentioned, I, I recall, 
the experience in California. Would you like to elaborate on what they're doing in California? Yes, California uh, state building law requires all new rules and renewed rules to incorporate uh, renewable energy devices, mainly solar uh, panels. And finally, Bill, can I ask, how can we encourage international collaboration in our sector? It's been, uh, I think, uh, international cooperation has been relatively weak because uh, of different climatic conditions and also because uh, roofing materials don't really lend themselves to uh, cross-border trade. I think I'm right about that. Uh, but I think the situation will change and has already changed when we consider renewable energy uh, products in the roofing system. Well, Bill, um, thank you so much for those, um, those answers. And as ever, look forward to our continual working together and renewing our relationships, hopefully face-to-face -face with uh, your colleagues and, and our friends in China very soon. On behalf of my colleagues at uh, Rooftop, thanks so much, Bill. Oh, it's been a great pleasure to be interviewed for the podcast by you. Right, thank you, and uh, thanks, Bill, and I'm pleased to hand back to uh, Phil and Pip. Thank you, James. What a great interview and such interesting content discussed with Bill. Now we're pleased to welcome Gary Walpole, MFRC's Safety, Health and Environmental Officer, to share his technical tip for this episode. Welcome, Gary. Afternoon, Phil. How are you keeping? Not too bad, thank you, Gary. So what have you got for us for this episode? So I'm going to keep it topical, Phil. Mm. We're in the midst of a mini heat wave. Hopefully it will continue all summer. <laughs> um, so I thought it was a pertinent time to remind listeners and our members on uh, sun safety. Yeah, it's mm. a good one, actually. We've, we've, we've covered um, how to deal with winter weather in the past. So if you've got any top tips on uh, how to help those working on rooftops in this warmer weather, that'd be great. Yeah, I think it's important because skin cancer is one of the most common forms of cancer. And although if it's caught early, it's relatively treatable, it can be fatal. Okay. Skin cancer in men is increasing at a faster rate than it is for women. And men are worse at protecting themselves from the sun. You know, mm. a bit of um, male bravado goes on. And those who work outdoors, like our members, um, are at greater risk of skin cancers. So we owe it to ourselves and our families uh, to take the risk of skin cancer seriously. Because sunburn can increase your risk of skin cancer later in life. Mm. Yeah, pretty and exposed you have to up there. remember that you can still get sunburn on cool days as you mm. can't feel ultraviolet rays. It's normally too, rate, uh, too late. We've all been sunburned at some point in our lives and, and you know, the, the, the warning signs come way after 
you know, the actual burning sensation. So, yeah. And it's also important to remember your skin type as well. If you have fair skin, moles, freckles, red or fair hair, and, and light coloured eyes. Hmm. So, what kind of advice have you got for for roofers out there working in the in the heat? Yeah, well, there's quite a few things you can do. Um, you can you can reschedule work for cooler times of the day, mm-hmm. as 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 site managers and um, uh, site supervisors, you could make sure that you uh, provide more frequent rest breaks mm-hmm. and introduce shaded areas so you work take rests. Yeah. Make sure you provide access to cool drinking water because obviously, you know, uh, the, the, the sun can uh, dehydrate people and send people into um, heat exhaustion. Yeah. Hydration is so key, isn't it? That's another important thing to remember. But PPE, um, re- remember things like, you know, um, covering your head mm. um, and your neck area, keeping long sleeve shirts on, you know, cover up to protect yourself from the from the harmful rays. Mm. And obviously, um, use sunscreen, and it should be um, a factor 30 or higher. So, Gary, is there any um, guidance or advice out there that members can find on this topic? Yeah, I mean, as you know, Phil, we've partnered with the IOSH No Time to Lose uh, campaign, Mm. and there's some great resources on their website. When there's links on our website to the IOSH No Time to Lose website, so there's some real good resources there. And also, um, our members, Marley, they run a safe in the sun campaign every year where they give um, workers uh, free sun cream and um, wristbands that helps them understand um, if they're being uh, overexposed to UV light so yeah there's plenty out there for our members so that's it for this episode of Rooftop thank you to James and of course to Dr Bill Chan for being our special guest and for his really interesting interview. Thank you also to Gary for his technical tip on staying safe in the sun. We hope you've enjoyed listening today, but please do share this with your friends and colleagues. And we hope that you will tune in next time. So it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me.